From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, Kate Moody. We've just finished recording our news show. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including Shopify steps up to Amazon. Really interesting battle taking shape here as Shopify tries to encourage its merchants not to add the Buy With Prime button that Amazon has launched onto its sites. Um, Really interesting to see how these two massive companies are sort of fighting to keep control over that customer relationship and that super valuable e-commerce segment. We also cover the fact that UBS has scrapped $1.4 billion deal to buy Wealthfront. Again, massive about turn here. You know, UBS obviously having a big shift in their strategy when it comes to determining how they're going to go after that wealth segment in the US. Um, really interesting discussion here about the difference between buying technology and, and building yourself and the different options that presents. And finally, we also touched on the fact that Japan has decided it's time to stop using floppy disks. So surprise, surprise. Uh, slightly outdated technology has snuck its way into the Japanese government, but also into the the homes of some of our guests and and our hosts. So we get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages don't go anywhere. Hey folks, the first ever 11FS Awards are coming this November and we need you, our listeners, to get involved in the nominations. Let us know who you think are the industry game changers, the biggest rule breakers and the best leaders. Nominate your favourite companies worthy of recognition over 14 different categories right now over at 11FSAwards.com. That's 11FSAwards.com. Get your nominations in before midnight on Monday 19th of September. Then join us on November 16th to celebrate the best and the brightest in the fintech and financial services industry. Full details on 11fsawards.com. As the leading open banking platform, Tink enables the largest banks, lenders, and payment providers to offer exceptional user experiences. Tink offers the best way to connect to banks across Europe to build seamless services that can reach more than 250 million consumers. And they're already doing this for the likes of American Express, PayPal, and Revolut. To get started with data-driven solutions for customer onboarding, making better risk decisions, or for instant bank payments with the highest conversion rate in the industry, visit tink.com. Welcome to episode 662 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Benjamin Enser, Director of Research at 11FS. How are you doing, Benjamin? I'm really, really well. Thank you, Kate. Highlights of your week so far? I'm going to say it's been raining, which is a very odd answer for an Englishman, but it's been so dry here for a couple of months. I'm just really pleased to see tons of rain. Um, I mean, I've had other highlights too, but... Uh, the country needed a bit of water. <laughs> the country did need water, so hooray for that. Um, as always, we're joined by some very special guests making a welcome return to Fintech Insider. We have Doug Soltis, Editor-in-Chief at BetaKit. Welcome back to the show, Doug. Could you give our listeners a recap on you and BetaKit, please? Yeah, so uh, BetaKit is Canada's like tech publication of record covering startups and innovation. Uh, and we have a particular fondness, that's a weird thing to say, but I think this is the right group of people to say it with, uh, for Fintech coverage. Uh, and I'm really happy to be here. We, it also rained here in, in Toronto, so we, we needed it as well. We've got some big fall energy right now. Glad to hear. I mean, definitely nothing wrong about being fond of fintech on this show, so you're, you're in good hands. Um, it's also a Fintech Insider debut for Elaine Burke, editor at Silicon Republic. Welcome, Elaine. Would you mind giving our listeners a little introduction to you and Silicon Republic, please? 
Yeah, I'd love to. Um, Silicon Republic is a science and tech news website, and we've been publishing news and views on science and technology for over 20 years now, which is a really long time for an online-only publication. I've only been there for about half that time, but uh, I've been editor since 2019. And like in those 20 years, I mean, we predate by a, a long shot a lot of the tech that we write about today. We were online before the iPod, you know, but... Now we have smartphones that are iPods as well as wallets and ticket holders and personal assistants and all of that. And we've been covering that evolution from our perspective in Ireland, where we look both ways across the Atlantic to the US and Silicon Valley, and also across the Irish Sea to the UK tech scene and further beyond into Europe. And we feel really an advantage in, a, in our point here, um, where domestically we have our own substantial tech scene and we are kind of in between those other massive tech scenes. And it's not just the big tech headquarters dot around the place. Uh, we have major financial services and fintech presence here. We've got pharma, medtech, biotech cluster in the West. There's EU research taking place in our institutions across the country. And of course, the startup ecosystem and everything that springs from that, we cover all of it. Lots to keep you busy. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Really excited to get your perspective on the news, some, some Irish news cropping up in particular that looking forward to, to getting your take on. So with that, let's get into the news. Our first story we've taken from Gizmodo, and that is that Shopify is picking a fight with Amazon. E-commerce selling platform Shopify has put on its boxing gloves to brawl with the heftiest heavyweight in its industry over checkout buttons. Shopify doesn't want to see Amazon's shiny new buy with Prime option on its sellers' stores and is using pop-ups to communicate that to them. The messages say that integrating Amazon's payment option is a violation of its terms of service that could have dire consequences for sellers' businesses. The Canadian fintech has recently started telling its clients that attempting to add the buy with Prime button to their stores could allow Amazon to steal their customers' data, according to reports. In Shopify's message, which was shown to sellers trying to add the HTML code for Buy With Prime onto their sites, Shopify also said that using Amazon's service could lead to fraudulent orders or to customers receiving incorrect charges. When customers choose the Buy With Prime checkout option, an order is created with Amazon and fulfilled from Amazon warehouses. Doug, big drama in the Canadian fintech space. Um, good to have someone who's fond of fintech on, on to discuss this with us. So um, would you mind giving us your, your take on this? Why do you think Shopify are making such a stand on this point? Well, fond of fintech and drama. So let's let's be clear here. Um, also, we should be noting that like as we're uh, recording this uh, day of breaking news that Shopify has also swapped out its chief operating officer and its CFO in advance of its uh, third quarter financial results. So there's there's um, lots of drama to go around. A uh, couple things to make of this specific news, like the Shopify-Amazon battle has been happening for years. It's been mostly a cold war. There's been a lot of... Um, if you look at Shopify's shop app, which uh, ostensibly started as a package delivery tracker app, uh, which Amazon uh, cut all integration with, uh, and then has morphed into possibly a storefront, <laughs> which would uh, a little bit more directly compete with Amazon. Like this is ongoing, but this also isn't the first time that Shopify has made efforts to protect the touch points of its customer base and data. I remember a few years ago, they got into a similar uh, scuffle with MailChimp around um, basically who owned the relationship and the data. And I think that at that time they were saying that MailChimp was breaking their terms of services, cut integrations. They eventually kissed and made up. And then uh, earlier this year, uh, Shopify invested $100 million in Klaviyo, which is a e-commerce focused direct competitor to MailChimp. So this is, this is uh, probably the first initial shots of what will be a longer battle to honestly own the most important thing in e-commerce, which is the customer touchpoint. Uh, and if it starts with sending notice to um, 
Shopify merchants that's technically violating terms of service and that there's data risks. That is kind of the first step that you take to protect <laughs> your customer base um, and, and those touch points. I would expect this to only heighten and develop. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely sounds quite serious. I mean, yeah, those are serious accusations that Shopify are putting forward. You know, do you think they're they're founded in reality? Are, are they based in in fact? Do you think? Oh uh, well, uh, how many of us read the terms of service? I think we're all violating some term of service right now. I don't know which one, but I'm sure we are. Um, and I, it, I think it's important to note that they probably do have a legal responsibility to know that if there is a term of service violation happening, to do it. Like they, ha- they have to protect that. Uh, it's preparatory for future um, scuffles down the road. But uh, in, at the end of the day, this is a situation where they they want to be the <laughs> the one commerce platform to rule, rule them all. They want to be the the um, the integration with payments, and uh, it's a really, really messy space for us. We we see this all the time, like fintech overlapping with e-commerce. Um, everyone is a partner, a competitor, uh, a frenemy, and but the um, click to purchase is a really, really, really important touch point for for both of these companies. So I, I expect this to come to more of a head, particularly since uh, what's been happening broadly in the e-commerce market. Um, the, I guess the explosive heights of early pandemic kind of dropping down to normal growth standards. And as we've seen again with Shopify, uh, Shopify's growth, its share price, um, dipping precipitously back to the pre uh, pandemic levels. Like they're, they're fighting on a lot of different turfs right now. So I, I expect this to continue whether or not, again, not a legal expert, but, uh, this is the beginning of something. Absolutely. Um, Benjamin, what was your take on this when you saw the news? I mean, Amazon ends up, Amazon has been hugely successful. It has changed the way millions of people shop. Um, But in the process, it's totally disrupted the retail industry. And so retailer after retailer after retailer has found itself fighting against Amazon because Amazon is so successful that it threatens all of these other businesses. so in a sense, it's perhaps surprising that this hasn't come out earlier because Amazon is the big rival to so many other businesses in retail. I mean, this is a huge threat to Shopify. If Shopify brings Amazon in and uh, yes, okay, that opens up the Shopify stores to more prime customers. But then if Amazon is fulfilling all of those orders, what does Shopify become? Shopify just gets pushed out. Ultimately, uh, Shopify doesn't have a marketplace. Shopify's got a lot of work to do to catch up with some of the things that Amazon can offer merchants. They've got a lot of work to do to make sure they can fulfill in the same way and offer that kind of support to merchants. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised Shopify's doing this. It's going to make them unpopular with some of their merchants. But if they don't do this, uh, where are they in five years or three years? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, thinking, um, obviously, Doug mentioned that uh, Shopify have invested in this sort of Mailchimp competitor, but they've also invested in, I think, Deliver that that sort of logistics, you know, startup fulfillment service they're building out. So, yeah, I think there's a, a couple of different areas where, by the sounds of it, you know, they're really trying to invest in bringing even more stuff in house into their own ecosystem. I mean, Doug, you know, you touched on how important that click to buy moment is. I mean, could could you break that down for our listeners? Like, why is that particular moment so important. Why is that BioPrime such a specific threat, do you think, to Shopify's business model? Well, think about like traditional retail, like you want to own the cash register, you want to own point of sale. That's a huge interaction touch point for not only um, 
the payment processing, money coming in, coming out, but then also data. And I, I think it's important. It was an excellent point just made. I almost see it as like the, a game of risk. And when you're controlling territory, you need to own those certain uh, countries or territories that are the bridges to other continents. And and this is one of those main um touch points. And I think it's interesting that Shopify did frame it in terms of, hey, our, our valued merchant, you should be aware that not only is this a violation, but your data is at risk, um, which I think is a narrative we're going to hear continue. But the the deliver example is another one that, that on, on the back end, the logistics and fulfillment is just another one of these battles uh, where we see overlap. So I think, um, you know, in the, in the game of risk that is e-commerce, you have to control <laughs> as I guess as many bridges uh, to revenue as possible, uh, particularly now. And I really like that point you made about um, Shopify warning its customers that they're they're at risk because, of course, they too are threatened by Amazon. You know, because Amazon is so successful is uh, in, in so many categories of commerce that lots of merchants using Shopify are themselves um, potentially going to get squashed by Amazon. Yes, I mean it's. <laughs> It's, there's so many different dynamics at play here. I was trying to think about it from you know, the customer perspective. You know, as an individual, when I'm going on to obviously these these merchants that are working with Shopify, a lot of them are you know, very small brands. You know, they they don't have a a big brand versus you know an ordinary consumer like me would would know. So when I'm shopping online and I want to buy something, I want to have confidence in how that experience is going to play out. And having an Amazon button on your your store, you can you can totally understand that the massive uplifting in confidence that would create like if you know that you can buy and have something delivered by amazon return through amazon um you know, that that drives a, a huge amount of confidence for, for me as an individual i imagine that plays out throughout the um the wider e-commerce space you know, when you look on amazon's site for this you know, it's full of quotes from merchants talking about the massive uplift this has given them in terms of their their conversion rates so it's gonna be difficult for shopify to push back on it if if it's having that big an impact for merchants, you know, can they can they deny their merchants this kind of uplift in sales in these e- economically challenging times when merchants just need to be pushing for as much revenue as they can? Well, they they tried it previously with the Mailchimp battle that I referenced before, and it didn't go so well because merchants were like, "We really need to use Mailchimp and email integration uh, with our uh, customers." I, I think Amazon is a much more important force in e-commerce than Mailchimp was. So it will be interesting to see how that goes. Um, but again, th- just to your point, like this isn't the first time that Shopify's run up against this. Before Shopify had its own point of sale offering, it was a welcome partner with Square, uh, Canada's Lightspeed, a variety of other vendors. And then you realize, hey, we need another engagement point for revenue. And then all of a sudden, all the people that you were working with are are now um, competitors uh, and possibly still partners. So I think when it comes to the the business of buying and selling, there you can't help but be um, fighting on multiple fronts. To the trust component, the last time I was on this podcast, we talked a lot about the battle that uh, fintech companies face against incumbents when it comes to trust. It's like there's there's no one more trusted when it comes to commerce than Amazon. Full stop. I think the data point is a really well-made one, though, because, I mean, 
if you are getting Amazon involved as a merchant, I mean, there's an argument to be made that Amazon's success is built on the back of having hoarded a lot of the data from many, many, many third-party resellers on its site. And it's it's literally under anti-competitive investigations because of those kind of practices that it's alleged to have taken, that have alleged to have taken place. So I think that could be probably Shopify's strongest argument to try and encourage its merchants away from this practice of the buy with Prime button, because there are other legitimate services that aren't Amazon that specialize in payment delivery and that side of fintech and not also, oh, we're giving you the payment button, but we're going to, on the back of that, sneak in some code that might also steal your data. And I'm not saying that that's what Amazon is doing, but that's what's allegedly uh, something that they could do. And we see that already with um, other behemoths like uh, Facebook, now Meta, and uh, how it has been able to hoard data and stuff like that. And even a recent investigation by a developer saying that if you are browsing within in-app browsers and certain apps, they are also scraping data. And that's that's how these businesses become as big as they, they can get because they get you on their site as a business and they learn from your business. And then they replace your products. Yeah, so to my point, the the trust I was referencing is consumer trust. <laughs> I think on the on the other end of the spectrum, I don't know if there's 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 trust there with Amazon. And um, just to Elaine's point, like the this leads entirely into Shopify's brand of arming the rebels against the empire. And who is the empire? The empire is Amazon. Now, whether that uh, it's a very compelling narrative. Um, you know, Star Wars fans, we see you. Uh, but I'm I'm not sure if that narrative, where that meets with business decisions, and it's it's a a compelling decision to make to add one click purchasing to your merchant page, right? So we'll see. Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, really great debate. Thank you so much for for all your perspectives. Definitely one to keep an eye on. Lots of potential changes in this space coming. As you've mentioned, Doug, obviously lots of changes happening at Shopify as well, more broadly. So I think we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that as we as we go through the next couple of weeks. Um, our next story uh, comes from the Irish Times. So that's Wayflyer has secured 254 million euros in debt financing from Credit Suisse. Irish startup Wayflyer has secured 253 million dollars. That's 254 million euros in debt financing from Credit Suisse. Wayflyer provides e-commerce stores with affordable unsecured loans to allow them to fund advertising and inventory in advance of selling items. It also offers detailed analytics to help clients to improve their sales performance. This new financing follows a 300 million debt financing deal with JP Morgan in May this year and a successful Series B funding round that valued the company at $1.6 billion. The e-commerce growth platform said the backing from the two financiers highlights the robustness of its business model and its position as a trusted growth partner by e-commerce businesses. More uh, e-commerce news. Elaine, great to have you here for the, the Irish perspective on this. Obviously, this is in your neck of the woods. So, are Wayflyer part of a, a wider trend of Irish fintech success or, or are they an outlier? What, what do you see? Well, Ireland's biggest tech success story is arguably Stripe, which is a fintech and payments uh, company. But in Stripe's case, we mostly lay claim to that success for being the birthplace of the Carlson brothers who founded the company, Patrick and John. Um, and Stripe was their second or third business, uh, but they established it in San Francisco and they were still very young when they did it. Uh, but it's now dual headquartered in Dublin, but it didn't spring out of this Irish startup ecosystem. So we claim it as an Irish uh fintech unicorn, but it didn't come from Ireland. It wasn't really built here. Wayflyer, on the other hand, it, uh, like some other recent Irish unicorns like uh, Flipdish and the reg tech firm Finergo, they have been built here in Ireland and grown here in Ireland. And I think that's what makes them a big deal to the startup community here. And like, there's so much fintech talent here because we've had such a strong financial services industry here for years. And I think it's an industry that's 
better understood here because of that financial services backbone. So when you have innovators coming up with ideas in the fintech space, there's a lot of uh, a wealth of experience in the broader industry around financial services to to understand what they're bringing to the table. Um, I think uh, financial services, because it's been bedded down much longer, uh, the big financial players have also supported accelerators and innovation hubs on in the scene here. And um, for that fintech industry, they, they've tried to actually drive some innovation themselves, uh, see if they, they can find innovators that they can maybe employ and then become uh, their own in-house entrepreneurs. Um, it's a highly organized and connected community. And these ingredients, they've all been there for a while, but they're only now really cooking up results, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you've, you've outlined, I think, really well there, kind of some of the ingredients of success in the Irish ecosystem more broadly. You know, how much do you think that explains Wayfly's like, individual success? Obviously, you know, they were founded in 2019. They're already you know, unicorn status. How, how, how can we explain that, that meteoric rise? Is it purely down to the ecosystem? Are there other things that are at play here? Financing. <laughs> financing drives that valuation and Wayflyer is a billion dollar business because it has been very successful at raising finance. Um, its backing is also coming from major financial services players, which is tremendous validation when you're a fintech firm. So there's the latest $253 million from Credit Suisse. That's a mix of debt financing and a debt equity hybrid. Uh, that came just months after the $300 million in debt financing from JP Morgan. And JP Morgan also took part in the Series B that actually made um, Wayflyer that unicorn valued uh, company at 1.6 billion. And another strength is that it went international early. Uh, that's something that the CEO and co-founder Aidan Corbett has said was key to Wayflyer's success is that they, they built the company out of Ireland, but they didn't want to just uh, make the company an Irish company to begin with. They went international as early as they could. Uh, they wanted to prove themselves as an international e-commerce finance player early on. And in the first month they launched in the UK, which is a great market to launch in for a fintech product. In month two, they were in the US. Within five months, they were trading successfully in Australia. So they had this rapid internationalization. Um, and I'd say that was probably helped along as well. Like it's no surprise the markets that they chose, UK, US, Australia, uh, massive Irish connections in those those countries like I mean we're, we're practically invading slowly but surely in, in our own little way um, and, and that, that connectedness in the Irish tech scene um, in general not just in fintech is really really important we don't talk about six degrees of separation in Ireland it's like two so you can very easily make connections with people once you know one Irish person um, like it's it, it's it's insulting when foreign people say to you that if you're Irish you might know everyone else in Ireland but it kind of isn't wrong <laughs> like it's not that hard to draw up connections here and it, the same goes for the diaspora once you land on the ground in the US UK or Australia you will you will find an Irish person soon enough you'll kick it off with a conversation and you'll probably be able to make some connections and grow there yeah it's it's, it's fascinating obviously you touched on obviously the fact that you know the the Collinson brothers have launched Stripe in the US but are from Ireland you know, that's kind of I suppose the most obvious example of that transatlantic Irish uh, US kind of connection I mean how how important is is that transatlantic I mean we, we talk about the special relationship in, in the UK between the UK and the US but it sort of seems to me maybe like the Irish US relationship is pretty special right now too yeah and I think certainly post Brexit if I can throw that terrible word back into uh, the conversation uh, the Irish-US connection has become even stronger already was very valuable but we always had the special relationship with the UK the UK is our neighbour and it's a huge market to make a play into so it's also it was always very important to Irish entrepreneurs but Brexit and uh, made some complications there and then people started looking further across the EU but also more and more relying on that US connection which we've had for years we've had since the great uh, amount of emigration that happened in the U in the US there's lots of um 
Irish connections there. There's there's tons of Irish people in Silicon Valley. The amount of um, webinars or things that I'll tune into and I'll hear this kind of hybrid um, West of Ireland, uh, California accent coming through and I'd be like, I know that guy's from Ireland. And I looked them up and definitely they studied in UCD and they went over to the States. You know, like there's a huge amount of people over there. Um, and yeah, I think that it's, it's a sense of connectedness, but it's also... Um, it's not unusual for us to be eyeing up the US market. Uh, we have an advantageous point where we are. We have a lot of uh, tech headquarters are here. So a lot of people in the tech scene uh, have heard of Ireland. Like we're a tiny little nation on the edge of Europe. You shouldn't. We shouldn't be as famous of, as we are. But when you've got your Facebook headquarters here, you've got your Twitter headquarters here, you've got Google headquarters here for EMEA, it, it makes you a well-known entity. Um, it's also been advantageous to have uh, our positioning even in time zones like there's operations that happen uh, 24/7 because of that base in the US and a base in Ireland because of the the way the time shift happens uh, and I've spoken to plenty of people who run the the me offices here saying that that's a huge advantage as well it's just um we kind of see ourselves as a little bridge from the US into Europe and I think they see it that way as well sure that's how they connected to us in the first place with the tr- first transatlantic cable like it goes back that long this relationship does absolutely um Benjamin, what did you take from this story in terms of the state of e-commerce in general? I thought what was interesting about this story is um, the the financing of e-commerce because if you if a business is an e-commerce business, you can see how it's doing right because you can get that digital data on the performance of that business day in day out, you know, literally by hour by hour, minute by minute. Um, so. You can see whether a business is healthy. You can see the trajectory. So what I think is interesting is seeing these specialist lenders emerging that are valuing digital businesses more intelligently and taking advantage of that to say, hey, there are some really good businesses here and actually there's some lousy ones. Um, But we can spot the the successful businesses faster and lend to them faster. And I think, you know, it's a very smart dynamic. It's taken, you know, some traditional banks too slow to spot the opportunities in growing parts of the digital digital economy. It's too slow to take advantage of new sources of data. Um, so fantastic to see new lenders jumping into that space to help all these uh, really interesting, you know, digital startups. Absolutely. Um, and obviously, you know, when I look at what Wayflyer offer. You know, we've just been talking about Shopify. They're both uh, businesses that are, are lending to to e-commerce platforms, but lending and also doing other things. So is it is it just enough to be just a lender nowadays? You know, Doug, is it can you go out there with just a lending offering in this space or do you have to offer more? Well that's a really interesting question, particularly now, because you know, as I'm learning about Wayflyer, I have to I feel like I'm always the bearer of bad news when I'm on this podcast, but that's just the way that Canadian fintech has been going. It, note that like Clearco, um, which offered a similar service, just pulled out of every market other than North America, including Ireland. Um for a variety of reasons, but particularly right now in this space, there's uh, some headwinds against this type of lending. You have Apple impeding on Facebook tracking, which has made uh, marketing for e-commerce uh, very difficult. You have uh, in- global interest rates rising, which makes the terms of this financing a little bit more uh, difficult to to satisfy and, and backstop. And then you just have 
because of war in Ukraine, pand- like there's a lot of reasons why the target customer base has been uh, burdened. So that force, Clearco, which which seems to be, uh, I, I don't want to say ahead, but fo- followed a similar uh, trajectory to Wayflower to just completely pull out of every market other than uh, North America because it couldn't it couldn't find uh, traction. So I'm I'm wondering. Um, how this will proceed. Because even then, you, you mentioned Shopify. Clearco offered similar types of lending when it came to uh, like fulfillment lending and other types. Um, there, there is a bit of a value to uh, building a full financial stack to support your target customers. The, the, the more you can help them make money, the more you make money, and the more ways that you can help them make money, the more ways you make money. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm uncertain about this specific vector right now. I'd be very interested to see how this company continues and if, if it's pathway to expansion, if it's, um, if it's insights, if it's metrics continue, if they have a bit of a secret sauce or just a better approach than some other companies that we've seen uh, completely run up against it in the last year as the economics shifted. Yeah, the dissection of the Clearco departure from Ireland is ongoing. I mean, we've had um, an interview on SiliconRepublic.com with the CEO of Outfund, Daniel Lipinski, and Outfund's actually taking over the uh, clients that Clearco is now leaving behind. And uh, his estimation of was that Clearco possibly just didn't understand uh, the market on this side of the Atlantic Ocean, and, and that could be a factor there. And he's uh, in his position, we expect him to be confident that revenue-based finance is going to be something that will continue going strong. And he he's confident that they'll be able to pick up where Clearco left off. But it definitely has thrown a lot of questions into the mix. Yeah, and even just questions of like, how do you approach other markets? Like, I'm hurt to hear that uh, Wayflyer has been able to move into other markets pretty uh, quickly. Um, waiting for the Canada announcement, we'd be happy to cover that and pay attention to it. Um, but you know, for Clearco, they, their expansion came just in the last year, following uh, a rebrand. They were only in Ireland a couple of months before pulling out. They were only in some of these markets for like one or two. And and even when they were moving into, I think it was as they uh, launched in Germany, they were already quietly cutting staff in Dublin that had just been hired like months prior. So I, the methodology behind the growth and the expansion is as important as the service that you're offering because... Um, you know, the, the point was made that there there's a, a lot of opportunity for innovative companies to try to service the types of businesses that traditionally can't get these types of loans uh, from the incumbent, uh, particularly in, in North America. But the the numbers matter. They have to they have to add up. The the approach um, means as much as what you're offering, I guess. It could even align quite similarly again with that Shopify story because I mean it's it's only a few months since Shopify o- overnight let go of ten percent of its staff and its reason behind that was they had had this massive growth during the pandemic and even though at the time of that earnings report where they had about 94% year-on-year increase in revenue they had said that they were expecting that to go back and normalize but they still then took a bet on oh maybe this is for good and we can invest lots in our growth and we can prepare for this this um this new expanded version of uh, Shopify and they they had to kind of bite the bullet on that a few months ago and let some people go and it could just be that sometimes companies make those mistakes 
Yeah, I, I feel in that circumstance that's a, that was the calling a, a trajectory that didn't quite um, equal out and having to to slow back. You also heard them talk a lot about um, waiting for traditional retail to recover, which is a huge component of their business. But then also Shopify Capital is a significant component of their business as well, right? So uh, I, I would say in the you know, to the original question asked, like, do you need to offer all of these different services? I think Shopify is in a better position to weather different types of downturns because they have those arms. And and ClearCo is a company that hadn't quite reached that level of, uh, you know, they had different lending options and they were directly competing with Shopify and some, but they didn't still have that that broad merchant base uh, in the way that Shopify does. I think uh, I think the fact that we're talking about this so much means that we definitely need to keep an eye on Dublin as a, as a fintech hub. I think they're coming for London's crown. We're going to have to watch out. All you this. can read all about it on siliconrepublic.com. <laughs> Nice. I see what you did there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, thanks very much. We're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back shortly. Your favourite fintech insiders are back in London for After Dark Homecoming. Join us at Village Underground on Wednesday, 21st of September, where we'll be taking things back to the beginning and recording our new show live. You can secure your spot now at 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. That is 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. We look forward to seeing you there. As you gear up for autumn, you need the right people on your team to help your small business fire on all cylinders. LinkedIn Jobs is here to make it easier. Tap into the world's largest professional network with over 30 million people in the UK. Create a job post in minutes and spread the word so your network can help you find the right people to hire. Just add the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to find candidates with just the right skills and experience. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires compared with leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. And you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash fintech. That's linkedin.com slash fintech. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. And that comes from Reuters. And that is UBS scraps $1.4 billion deal to buy Wealthfront. Swiss Bank, UBS and Wealthfront have mutually agreed to terminate their $1.4 billion deal. Part of the deal would have seen the automated wealth management provider being acquired by UBS. The deal with Wealthfront, one of the largest digital wealth management firms known as RoboAdvisors, was expected to close in the second half of the year. Several large financial firms, including JP Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, have ventured into new client bases in recent times beyond the high net worth individuals they traditionally served. The Swiss bank said it is committed to its plan of growing in the US and will continue to build its digital wealth management offering. Benjamin, what's uh, what's your take on this? Why is this deal collapsed? I'm not sure it was a very good deal in the first place for UBS. Um, Wealthfront had got overtaken very quickly by firms like Schwab with its intelligent advisors, Vanguard with personal advisor services and so on. Um, Wealthfront wasn't very big, it wasn't growing very fast, and UBS was going to pay an awful lot of money for it. And I'm not really sure what Wealthfront was bringing to UBS that UBS couldn't build for itself. So it may actually be that UBS is doing itself a favor by terminating the deal um, because they were going to buy something that probably wasn't worth what they'd agreed um, in the first place because it 
I'm not sure what Wealthfront was really going to bring UBS that UBS didn't have or couldn't do. So it may actually be that the deal has collapsed because um, UBS's sort of new management is looking at it and saying, hang on, why why are we doing this? And has therefore um, pull, pulled the plug. Yeah, absolutely interesting. Um, Elaine, are you, are you surprised when you see news of mergers collapsing and mergers collapsing just part of the, the industry narrative nowadays? Uh, I think it is definitely maybe a more recent uh, common thread, um, but it's, it's not that common. What, what I see a lot more often now is uh, merger deals being investigated um, for antitrust concerns out of the EU. Uh, that's been a, a more common one that we're coming across at the moment. Um, but I think uh, like a $1.4 billion valuation on a business that was already kind of being beaten out by competitors uh, probably w- does need to be looked back at. And uh, it's probably just part of this bit of frenzied activity that's been going on in fintech and also in um, kind of new fintech spaces, you know, like your Web3 and all that kind of stuff, where the, the valuations have gone sky high just because investor interest has gone quite mad, to be perfectly honest. And it's just become this um, kind of hyperbolic space. And this is a bit of a, a rain check on that, I guess. Interesting. Um, Doug, what do you think this deal says about Wellfront, the fact that it's collapsed? Well, we were talking just during the break about difficult businesses to be in, and the robo-advisor space is certainly one of them, because uh, not only are you trying to uh, compete, again, on, on on trust and perception against traditional services, but then you've got to find uh, cost of acquisition and then bring the returns on the back end. They're, these are difficult needles to thread for emerging companies that don't have decades of historical experience. Um, but the thing that stood out to me uh, with this, and I think it's, you know, whether or not this was a bad deal, there's also maybe an opportunity to wait six months and you can just buy their book of business, depending upon how things go. Do you have to uh, complete a, a a full deal or can you wait for better uh, terms down the road? But what stood out to me, uh, the, you know, the magic name that maybe uh, startups were overreaching, Tiger Global was invested in the last $200 million round. And I think that's indicative of, uh, one, a lack of diligence, but then two, a belief that pumping insane amounts of capital into a business will uh, inevitably lead to success. And we just that we have been seeing the results of that for a variety of companies around the world over the last, uh, basically since the start of 2022. Mm. Benjamin, um, obviously, you were talking about the maybe not being a good deal for UBS in terms of you know, the money spent on building the capability. But yeah, I think if I remember correctly, they initially talked about it also being a deal to acquire talent and to bring in the talent that Wellfront had. How do you see that playing out? Is acquisition an effective strategy for bringing in talent and innovation into incumbent banks? Well, so interestingly, the um, chief executive of UBS Americas appointed in July is a lady called Noreen Hassan. Now, she was part of Schwab building intelligent portfolios back in 2014. And I remember watching that at the time and being blown away at how quickly the incumbent Schwab and also Vanguard responded. Right? They were on top of Wealthfront and Betterment within about 12 months. They'd launched propositions that were better. Right? We often talk on this um, podcast about how slow established firms are, how the incumbent firms, oh, they don't move. Schwab and Vanguard moved like lightning. And Noreen Hassan was part of that. So she built a better proposition at Schwab seven, eight years ago. She then went to Morgan Stanley, integrated E-Trade. So she's probably looked at this deal and said, what do I get by bringing in people at a company I beat eight years ago 
beats a bit of an exaggeration, but Schwab, with a much bigger brand, was able to win more customers. Um, so I think it's an interesting one because I think there are some really smart people in uh, the, the in the U.S. brokerage industry, um, and I think in this case they're like, well, actually, the incumbents are ahead of the startups in some areas, and, and I'm sure there are some super smart people within Wealthfront. But I think maybe UBS is looking at this and saying, actually, we don't need these people to execute our strategy because we're already um, we already know where we're going. And actually, maybe in in this case, maybe bringing in another culture maybe that was going to slow UBS down more than speed it up. And it you know, depends on where you are. Mm. Um, but maybe the judgment was actually, in this case, it's not going to help us move faster. Or just hire the talent without having to buy the company. Well, yeah. In this in this case, that may may, may turn out to be, a, as you said. But the acquisition strategy. of talent strategy has worked for a very, very long time. I mean, Apple's buying companies quietly in the background all the time. Uh, like we, we credit all the innovation to Apple, but they they bring a lot of it in-house by picking up small companies that they keep their eye on. And a lot of big tech has done that. So I can see why that is still kind of seen as a solid strategy, but you probably need the acumen of the people at Apple or, or the big tech people to really evaluate those companies you want to take on board. I think my hypothesis would probably be that those acquisitions have been or seemed successful when the company that's acquired has been a sort of infrastructure provider or, or they've been part, you know, absorbed into that sort of behind the scenes you know, technical platform. I think we've generally seen quite a lot of failures when it comes to acquisitions of you know, customer facing propositions. You, know, you look at Simple, I think, being the obvious example, you know, sad story of them being you know, purchased and, and then basically sort of broken and, and dumped on the roadside. So, you know, we've not seen a, a great track record of, of acquisition of talent in those consumer facing offerings, I would say. Is there another angle to this? Like maybe uh, UBS wasn't interested, but maybe they were fine with the talent. Maybe they were fine with the, the tech or the, the knowledge. They just don't want the customer base at this point. Because um, speaking as a, an elder millennial, I'm holding on to that. Uh, by, by my fingernails. I'm just I'm just wondering if it's not a great time to be in, investing in uh, a generation of people that don't have wealth to invest. I don't think that's this. I don't think that's the story because um, you've got this gradual wealth transfer going on. I mean, obviously that happens continually, but particularly in the states with the sort of baby boomer generation, um, that there, there is this sort of story of, of wealth transfer and it, it's, it's not as simple as generational sometimes it's you know it's going to to the wife if the husband dies or what or whatever um but you know that that your generation is exactly the people that, that the big u.s investment brokerages want to attract i mean okay you're canadian so they're not interested in you but <laughs> but you know the big, absolutely not <laughs> but you know big firms absolutely want to get those customers who are getting into their sort of peak earning potential and so on so i don't think that's the story but you know wealthfront's only got four hundred and seventy thousand customers now four hundred and seventy thousand people is a lot of people you put that in irish context it's huge but in an american context four hundred and seventy thousand is is not that many customers. And the, the rate they were paying for meant they were paying an awful lot of money for those customers. And Wealthfront isn't profitable, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so it was an unprofitable business, not a huge number of customers. Um, I think that maybe, you know, I think there's a number of reasons why they maybe walked away. I would love to know how many billion dollar valued companies are profitable because... <laughs> Plenty of tech startups that reach that valuation have yet to kind of figure out their revenue model a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think to the, you know to the point we were talking about earlier about um, 
when we're talking about some of the, the lenders and, you know, the environment sort of turning against them, well, you know, now that a lot of Western economies and Eastern economies and so on are, are starting to turn down, you know, the, all the consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, suddenly businesses that are not profitable, people are asking much tougher questions than they were two or three years ago because, you know, that growth strategy, at some point you've got to get to profit. Um, and so businesses that don't have a clear path to profit, I think, are, are coming under pressure. Absolutely. Well, let's keep an eye on what UBS do next. As you say, if, if they're going to potentially try and take things on themselves, that, that could be a really exciting thing to, to see happening in the market. So we'll, we'll keep our eyes peeled. Our next story comes from, from the BBC, uh, and that is that new shared banking hubs are going to open in 13 more places in Great Britain and Northern Ireland. 13 locations in the UK have been earmarked for shared banking hubs to ensure services are available in areas where the last bank branch has closed. A swathe of branch closures have raised concerns about access to cash for those who need it and difficulties for small businesses trying to deposit takings. 12 other areas have previously been identified, but the doors have opened on just two of these. A banking hub is a shared service that operates in a similar way to a standard branch with a counter service run by post office staff where customers of almost any bank can withdraw and deposit cash, make bill payments and carry out regular transactions. Trickier inquiries are dealt with by a representative from one of each of the major banks who each visit once a week. Among the 13 new proposed banking hub sites, four are located in Scotland and one is in Kilkeel in Northern Ireland. So um, I, my my Irish family who who live in Scotland actually now, just to confuse things, when I first told them that I was working for 11FS, my uncle said to me very crossy, you know, are you personally responsible for bank branches closing? And I didn't, didn't quite know how to, how to answer him. But Benjamin, are, has the fintech revolution thought enough about bank branches? Are, is fintech responsible for the death of bank branches? I don't know that it's... That what's important here is bank branches. I think what's important here is services for everyone and making sure that everybody continues to be able to uh, access banking infrastructure, right? So, you know, we used to have telegraph offices where people you would go to send a message, right? Um, we don't have those anymore. Um, <laughs> so, we don't necessarily have to have bank branches. What we do have to have is access to money and access to banking services for everybody. Um, so, I think this is great because actually bank branches have really been losing money for ages. You know, it, it costs quite a bit of money to rent a building, to maintain a building and so on. It doesn't make sense in smaller towns and large villages to have two, three, four branches operating. It's just not cost effective. That's why we've seen all sorts of solutions like mobile branches, you know, as in a, a lorry, a truck that, you know, drives around to different communities. Uh, I think this shared service model makes a lot of sense Um I'm surprised we haven't seen more of them, honestly. Interesting. Elaine, what's what's your take on this? I mean, you know, it's a good idea when it just makes sense when you hear it. Like when I was reading about this, I was like, we need this. Absolutely, we need this in Ireland. I would love to see this take shape over here because we've had plenty of bank closures here. We've had banks literally pulling out of Ireland uh, this year. And uh, I, I just hear from people, I'm, I'm the same. I, I work in tech and for some reason I, I get the complaints when that banks decide technology is better than humans in place and uh, people are asking me why that's happening and I'm like I don't I don't agree with it either I think it's terrible service and I love the idea that if people could go to these in-person services that the banks are actually kind of competing on the same turf as well I mean if you're going in for to meet with a representative and they're only there one, one time a day or if you're there and you hear you see how present how amenable they are to another customer or something like that that could be like the banks could really compete here for 
actually like taking um, new customers on, p- people that might switch services. And people are very, very slow to switch banking services because they it's something that they set up and forget about. Whereas if you had like an interaction with a bank and then you saw someone else with an interaction with their bank on the same turf, you might start to reconsider those things and start switching. And like there are advisors that say it's a good idea to be switching those services if we ever just thought about it for once in a while. I think there's a lot of positive things that can come from this in terms of service for people. And it's not necessarily like digitally led service, but I'm I'm really loath to kind of go for like all this idea of like full cashless society and none of this in-person stuff because that in-person stuff is very, very valuable. It's very, very valuable for the banks themselves to ensure customer retention because if something serious is happening with your money, it's not just your day-to-day payments. You want to deal with a human being. You don't want to be fobbed off or dealing with um, a chat robot or something like that. Like this is your money. It could be your, your whole livelihood that you're trying to have a conversation about. It would be very dangerous for banks to go down a route of full digitization and to forget about people who deal in cash and also people who want to have conversations with human beings. Doug, we've got very excited so far. You branded yourself earlier as the bringer of bad news. Can you see any any challenges for this? Any 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 things we should be watching out for? I want to move. No, I think this is amazing. Uh, the, the bad news is all in Canada. Uh, and I'll preface this by saying uh, recently, for the second time in a year, uh, Canada suffered a major, major telecom outage from one of the major Canadian carriers, which not only uh, brought down uh, telecom service for uh, like a third of the population, uh, because competition is so bad in Canada, it also brought down access to uh, major financial and commerce services. So no one could go to a store and buy food because all of the uh, Interac, which is the major um, payment provider, like we we went cashless years ago through Interac, just through debit, um, was was down because it relied upon Rogers. But then also all of the uh, bank ATMs uh, went down as well. And those banks are not being staffed by human tellers at this point. So like... I was actually adding cash through Apple Pay to a Starbucks app to eat food that day and like feed my family. Um, so I am coming to this from a, a variety of perspectives where there is limited competition in Canada. Canada is a huge country. Uh, most of the population lives very close to the U.S. border, but there are people in remote regions who don't have bank services at all or access. There has been no movement towards any sort of consolidation of uh, physical bank spaces. They've just been kind of been closed or limited service. It's very, very bad. I think this is incredible uh, because for some of the points made, um, consolidating these, which I think the banks would initially see as a cost-saving measure, actually forces competition because they're putting their services right up against each other. Um, and it's not just get get a free iPad with uh, switching your account type thing. Now, again, there's no competition in Canada on a variety of fronts, particularly when it comes to banking. Um, but I, I think this is a great initiative. Benjamin, I mean, they're probably maybe being a bit greedy here, but are there any services that these branches aren't currently offering that you think they should be offering? Yeah, I think the really obvious one is um, more financial advice to, you know, along the lines that Elaine was um, saying. Um, People who live in, you know, smaller towns or villages or, you know, remote parts of Canada or Australia or Ireland or wherever, um, they need financial advice just as much as everyone else, right? So how do they get that? How do you, and it's very, very hard to get advice from a computer or trust a computer. People want advice from a human. I think the, the, the big opportunity here is video. 
um, you know, we're using video to see each other, although even though this is a podcast, um, there's a big opportunity to bring video into those so that people in Kilkeel, in County Down or wherever they are, um, can speak to a mortgage advisor or an investment fund advisor or whatever who may be sitting in Belfast or, or, or wherever, right? Um, so I'd like to see video getting deployed into this so that people into these branches so people can get advice because yes I want cash yes I want transactions yes of course I want food um, but people also need advice on on their financial situations and generally people want that from a human um, so how do you pro- how do you provide financial advice through these shared service centers and it goes back to the point made earlier about trust as well I mean just googling for financial advice probably isn't the best route to find it. You might find all sorts of uh, dark alleyways <laughs> that you end up going down that way. So to go into an institution that has been labelled as a safe space to get on online and speak to definitely vetted people who can offer this kind of advice would be so valuable to people and make them feel safe about doing it as well. People that might not feel safe about doing it online might actually become more uncomfortable online, more comfortable online banking by being presented with a safe space within which to do it. And uh, just today, there was news in Ireland about how the, the money and advice uh, budgeting services in Ireland, uh, we call MABS, has been getting lots more inquiries for people looking for financial advice because we are in this crunch of the cost of living. And that's going to become even more important over the next few months. That's a great point. We've seen that happen in in telehealth as well, uh, particularly in Canada. Was the pandemic basically broke down any of the red tape that was preventing um, uh, health services, health tech services, from offering uh, like teleconferencing or things like that? That was actually like not legal or not allowed, and that those um, that was kind of waved away during the pandemic. And there was there was a huge movement towards, particularly with mental health services, like safety concerns, accessibility, and just like why are we sending uh, old people to a place where everyone else is sick to get their regular checkup. I see the exact same thing happening from a, a, a financial lens. I think that's a really great comparison. Absolutely. Loads of loads of opportunity. I'd love personally to kind of see this making fintechs feel more accessible to older generations as well. Like I think we sort of see anecdotally now, like when we speak to older older customers as, as part of the research that we do you know they're hearing more and more from their, their families their grandchildren about these these digital services but there's still kind of that that barrier of, of maybe making that switch and trying some of these services because there is still that you know, uh, understandable cultural connection to to having that physical place to go and, and to me that'd be really exciting if if having these types of shared uh, locations could make fintechs more appealing to to that audience so yeah that's what i'm so I'm keeping my fingers crossed for, so that my grandma will forgive me as well for me being <laughs> well, personally responsible be- for closing all the bank branches in the world. So, um. <laughs> fintechs could even use these spaces to schedule workshops and stuff like that to really connect with customers and, and people in, in communities that they're not already reaching. Yep. Fingers crossed. Okay. Now for the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover, but still definitely deserve a shout out. So Benjamin, do you want to get us started? Yes. So this story was covered in Fintech magazine. Identity decisioning Fintech Alloy has raised another $52 million. This is an extension of last year's Series C, and it's part of Alloy's bid to help Fintechs fight fraud and financial crime. The latest round of investment was led by Lightspeed Venture Partners and Avenir Growth, with further participation from existing investors. The New York-based Fraud Tech says it will use the money to invest in a global rollout. The company announced an expansion into four 40 countries last month and will embark on a recruitment drive that will help it in that endeavour. Alloy is also in the process of building new features for its platform. 
Over 300 companies use Alloy to connect to more than 160 data sources, automating identity decisions during account origination and monitoring them on an ongoing basis. For more on this raise, we reached out to Derek Joyce, Chief Operations Officer of Alloy, to find out what this raise makes possible. That's a great question. But really, this funding wasn't so much about what wasn't possible and more about the opportunities and locks for us in the future. We're in a great position as a business and we continue to grow. We're also fortunate to have an incredible set of investors that deeply understand the problems we are solving. They understand that compliance requirements are continuing to get more complicated and that fraud rates are rising. And they know that fraud is a silent killer of both product lines and entire businesses. All that to say, we already had the right set of priorities as a company, and the new funding will mainly support continuing to drive those. The first is global expansion. We recently announced that Alloy is now available in 40 countries worldwide, and that is just the beginning. The second is enabling fraud, credit, and compliance decisioning throughout a full customer lifecycle as something companies install instead of something they build. By doing this, Alloy helps companies manage risk and unlock growth. Finally, the funding allows us to scale with our clients and helps us to better support the complex risks that they are facing today and they'll face in the next 12 months and beyond. We also have a few other big things planned that we aren't ready to share just yet, so stay tuned for what's next from the Alloy team. So we were just talking about uh, bank branches and, and banks sharing uh, branches in maybe smaller towns and, and large villages. There are just some things that it just makes sense for companies to share. And one of those is fighting fraud. You know, if each individual bank tries to tackle fraud on its own, they're always going to be playing catch up against some of the most sophisticated criminals. It really makes total sense for companies to partner and effectively outsource some of this to companies like Alloy. So super excited to see them raising. I wish them the best of luck. Um, this kind of deal makes a lot of sense because it just makes sense for companies to share these things through specialist companies like Alloy. Interesting. Our next story is from The Guardian, and that is that OnlyFans profits boom as users spent $4.8 billion on the platform last year. OnlyFans has paid out more than $500 million, which is £433 million, to its owner in the last two years as the British-based subscriber platform synonymous with pornography reported record profits. Leonid Radvinsky, the site's owner, is the sole shareholder in a business that has seen its profits boom as users spent £4.8 billion on the site last year. The financial results mean OnlyFans is one of the most financially successful British tech startups in recent years. The company's latest accounts show pre-tax profits rose by 615% to $432 million in the 12 months to September 2021. The site acts as a marketplace for adult performers who upload their own material and keep 80% of the revenue. The remaining 20% goes to OnlyFans and covers the cost of running the business, handling credit card processing and providing a very healthy income for Radvinsky. Um, I think (laughs) Elaine was asking earlier if we could find billion dollar valuated companies making a profit. I think we've found one. It's sadly not in the fintech (laughs) space. Um, But yeah, I suppose as as any good researcher would, I did attempt to go onto the OnlyFans website before we started recording, but the 11FS firewall said no. (laughs) That's Um, probably a good thing. Yeah, which I think was a good thing. I mean, I I was interested to see, you know, how how they'd structured kind of their their pages and stuff. Anyhow. um, Bear a thought for all the journalists who have to cover OnlyFans on a regular basis and have to be very careful about what they Google. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, yeah, no, I think I'm understanding that more and more now. But I mean, I think the fact that, you know, our firewall blocked them is probably a fair, a fairly accurate reflection of how the financial services industry as a whole is is interacting with them. I think, you know, despite their obvious commercial success, finding and then keeping financial service partners seems to have been unsurprisingly uh, an ongoing challenge. So I think I read at one stage, you know, they'd theoretically banned 
you know, explicit pornographic content in an attempt to keep payment processing partners on side. But you know, we're then able to backtrack from that because you know, the sheer volume of their customers putting pressures on banks and payment providers you know, allowed them to, to kind of do an about face. So I think it's a really interesting ongoing tussle between um, you know, sort of adult entertainment industry and the financial services space. If they continue to grow at this rate, I think the rumours about them trying to sort of go it alone and build their own in-house you know, capabilities aren't really going to go anywhere because at the moment it's you know, creating a lot of noise and a lot of difficulty for them. But yeah, an ongoing uh, interesting debate for the world of financial services about what they want to enable um, and, and what, they, what they want to block. So uh, we also have a fun announcement for us at 11FS. So we are teaming up with Fintech Nexus to bring Merge to London. You can join us on the 17th and 18th. Uh, you can join us on the 17th and 18th of October at Tobacco Dock for two days of conversation on all things Web3 and fintech. The event will be co-chaired by 11FS's own Maurizio Magaldi, host of our sister show Blockchain Insider, and will feature innovators and thought leaders driving the biggest changes in the industry. You can get your tickets from the link in this podcast description. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week. And that is that Japan has decided it's time to stop using floppy disks. Japan has declared war on old-fashioned tech solutions, including floppy disks and CDs. This is after a government committee found they were still being used to submit applications and other forms in almost 2,000 instances. Taro Kano, Japan's digital minister, hit out against their continued use despite far more effective solutions becoming available in recent years. Japan's digital agency is now set to change regulations to permit usage of modern online services. Various explanations have been offered, including poor digital literacy and a bureaucratic culture with conservative attitudes. I'm looking to get rid of the fax machine and I still plan to do that, Kano told a news conference this week. Wow. I mean, Benjamin, you were talking about telegraph offices earlier. <laughs> I maybe, maybe I should come to you first for a, a view on floppy disks. I mean, it seems that parts of the Japanese government were requiring people to use floppy disks. I mean, uh, and it's, just, it's baffling. Is that just really old rules that I suppose, you know, if, if you get a legislation or a civil servant who writes a rule specifying that you have to use a particular technology, then 20, 30, 40 years later, you end up with these technologies hanging around, even though their time has long since passed. Um, and I suppose that's the lesson for legislators is write legislation that isn't that's technology agnostic. Elaine, have you got any floppy disks hanging around in your house? I don't, but I am currently surrounded by a lot of CDs on my left and a lot of vinyl in front of me. And I'm pretty sure the new Arctic Monkeys uh, album is coming out on cassette. So I'm just wondering how the Japanese ministry is just a bunch of hipsters or something. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't immediately getting that vibe from them based on on the the news coverage i mean uh, doug what's what's your view floppy disks hipster out of date it's it's not even hips like there's not enough access to this for it to be hipster like this isn't even cassette like you're they're, they're gonna put out a press release saying that they've they've adopted scuzzy drive technology holding 100 megabytes and that's gonna be a really big deal for them i i the the question of like where does one even get a floppy disk is this actually even a floppy disk or is this like the three point um, five-inch disc. This is where I reveal my age. I have a lot of affection for outdated forms of technology. Uh, I still use mini discs for audio in addition to CDs and uh, vinyl because there's something tangible to this. But when it comes to just like pure data transfer, this is not. This is not it. These things um, can hold less than an email attachment, essentially. But it's probably a case of that uh, 
point was made earlier about, you know, tech makes an update on you and then things change and you have to change with it. And think of how long running government departments are. I mean, they're, they're not companies that are a few, a, a few decades old or something like that. They've been around for a really, really, really long time. And they're very, very slow to change and to adapt to things. So I'm not actually hugely surprised by this because it's a, a government thing. I, I remember when, um, I think when Windows 10 was coming out back in the day, there was all this talk of how many government uh, services, public services were relying still on things like Windows 98 and further back than that. And, and that was going to be this like critical problem once Microsoft stopped supporting those um, things with their security patches and stuff like that. So when it comes to government services, this isn't uncommon. I mean, floppy disks is taking it to a new extreme, but is it that surprising? <laughs> Yeah, well, I think the last time I was on the podcast, we were talking about the death of Internet Explorer, and I mentioned that uh, the province of Quebec and Canada, uh, a, bu- a bunch of their health services still required Internet Explorer to be used to access like health information, uh, which is very bad. I think definitely agree with you. Governments are more concerned with executing processes than improving them. And there's a, a balance to be struck between technological backstops. Like we should have hard copies of things. And, uh, you know, we, I think we, as obvious uh, lovers of vinyl, there's a reason for that because we like having access to our music and not having it disappear one day based upon whatever streaming service uh, decides to remove the terms of service or change it. Again, everyone read your terms of services. But um, <laughs> I think this is more just like a, a, a like there are other, <laughs> we're talking about floppy disk. I can't even, I can't even comprehend this. That's, I don't think any of our email signatures are small enough to fit on a floppy disk right now. That's like 1.44 megabytes, isn't it? Yeah. It's not. That's, <laughs> that's, not, that's like smaller than a But you GIF. used to be able to get a whole game on those 3.5 megabytes. Like, I, I mean. Oh, you uh, mean on, on multiple disks that you would <laughs> in, like, install. I definitely oh, played games that were on a floppy disk. I, on, I mean, on I'm a bit disc? older than you are. Are we talking Commander Keen? But I can't remember what it was called. It was probably just looking at screen screen. I don't know if we want to have a technology age off here. I don't think anyone wins. In this <laughs> but well, I'm I'm with it. Like like let's go pure floppy disk Johnny Mnemonic is, style. Like the future there is, is now. something to the, the the physicalness of it because they actually they were holding their own data at the end of the day. It wasn't in a cloud somewhere that they didn't control. So there is something to be said for that. Maybe not on floppy disks, but I wonder constantly about the day that a data center just collapses and everyone loses historic records or, or something important data-wise because there's the physical control element has kind of been off, offloaded onto the air quotes cloud, which is a physical system that's just based somewhere else. Back up um, your data. Yeah. Check your terms physical and conditions. Back up your data. That you have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Benjamin, what, what floppy disks have you still got lying around the Ensa household? Do you know, I actually do have some floppy disks from no. years ago. I just never got rid of them. I mean, I've, they've probably been sat in a drawer for 20 years. I doubt I've even got anything that can read them anymore. <laughs> I've just never thrown them out. My wife will be cross when she hears that. Actually, she doesn't listen to this. Have you ever shown them to your children? Do they know what they are? I did remember, I did remember hearing about a comment of someone young who, who, when shown one, said, why have you printed out? A physical version of the save icon. Because, <laughs> yeah, younger people have that no hurts. idea what a floppy disk is. Not unsurprisingly. That's, that's where it lives forever. It will always be in the save icon. It's it's, it's the, the eulogy to the, the floppy disk. It's a gravestone. But it won't, because when our generations are passed, no one will know what it is. Well, maybe not. 
Rest you know. in peace, yeah. floppy disks. <laughs> that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. It's been a great conversation. Where can people find out more about you, Benjamin? Um, I'm Benjamin Ensor. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, or you can reach me through 11fs.com. Brilliant. Doug? Uh, you can find me at betakit.com, uh, on the Betakit podcast, or at Tron, T-R-O-N, on Twitter. Awesome. And Elaine? Uh, so siliconrepublic.com and we are at Silicon Republic on all social platforms and I am at Critical Red Pen on Twitter. Brilliant. Um, as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody, or on Twitter at k8.moody. Thank you so much for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Keeping up with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon and industry speak. So sometimes you just need a quick human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. Bite-sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters and what comes next. Bite Size goes out every Friday at 11am, so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters.